welcome you back, and uh, this morning we're going to continue our series through Marks uh, of a Healthy Church, and this morning we're going to try to answer the question, what is conversion? What is conversion? But before we do that, let's pray together. Oh Lord, we just sung, Father, about how great you are, Lord, and uh, we must admit, Lord, that there are no words to convey your greatness. We, we can try, Lord, but there are no words that can totally encompass the totality of who you are and of what you have done for us supremely through Jesus Christ, Lord. But I pray that the true sense of it would be felt in our hearts. And I pray that this morning now, as we talk about conversion, Lord, that our hearts would be amazed at your grace once again, about the greatness of your power to save even us, God, who are dead in our sins. You made us alive together with Christ. And for that, Lord, we'll give you everlasting praise. Bless us now. In this preaching and hearing of your word, uh, knit our hearts and our minds together in love, and give us, we pray, the mind of Christ. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And I want to read you this uh, just rather remarkable story. Uh, it says... Uh, during an American Bible Society distribution campaign in Zimbabwe years ago, one of the recipients, that is the, the recipient of a Bible, uh, gave a rather antagonistic response to the person who was trying to give, give them the Bible. They said, if you give me that New Testament, I will roll the pages and use them to make cigarettes. The man told uh, Gaylord Kabarami, the General Secretary of the Bible Society of Zimbabwe. I understand that, Gaylord replied, but at least promise to read the page of the New Testament before you smoke it. <laughs> when the man agreed, Gaylord gave him the New Testament, and that was the last he saw of him. That is, until... Uh, when the story was written, it says last year, which, would, which uh, we learned later was, is 15 years later. So 15 years later, uh, Gaylord was attending a Methodist convention in Zimbabwe. The speaker on the platform suddenly spotted him, pointed him out to the audience and said, This man doesn't remember me. But 15 years ago, he tried to sell me a New Testament, and when I refused to buy it, he gave it to me. Even though I told him I would use the pages to roll cigarettes, I smoked Matthew, and I smoked Mark, and I smoked Luke. But when I got to John 3.16, I couldn't smoke anymore. My life was changed from that moment. The cigarette-smoking antagonist had become a full-time church evangelist, devoting his entire life to showing others the way of salvation he found in God's Word. What I, I want to talk about this morning, what I, I want us to think about is what happened to that man. 
And I'm going to suggest to you today that what happened to that man was a miracle. A supernatural work of God. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we talk about what is conversion. What is conversion? Uh, So now let's uh, go to our text here from Ephesians chapter 2. And so if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, you, in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. In kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word of God. You may be seated. I want to talk about four points today concerning conversion. Number one, conversion is not mental assent. Number two, conversion is not moral resolve. Number three, conversion is spiritual spiritual resurrection. And number four, conversion is crucial to the church. So again, Conversion is not mental ascent. Conversion is not moral resolve. Conversion is spiritual resurrection. And conversion is crucial, crucial to the church. So first, conversion is not mental ascent. As we've been, as we've been doing, I, I often find it helpful when we're talking about something to not just say what it is, but to also say what it isn't. And I think there is a lot of confusion about this. The first thing we need to think about is that confusion is not mental, just mere mental assent. So when we think about what it means to be converted, and that's what we're talking about. What does it mean to be converted? What happens to a person at conversion? How is a person converted? What does it mean to be converted? What has to happen? Well, first thing we can say is that knowledge of Christ is necessary for conversion. Right? So when I say conversion is not mental assent, I don't mean... That you, you, you don't have to know anything. Of course you have to know things and give assent to things. But it, what I'm saying is it's not enough. But knowledge of Christ is necessary. For example, Romans 10, 14, and 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So you can't, people can't believe in in, the, in whom they've never heard. So there has to be knowledge of Christ to be converted. But 
knowledge of Christ is not enough. How do we know that? Because James tells us, in, in James 2.19, James says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe. And shudder. So in other words, demons, demons have better doctrine than we do. They're not saved. They're not saved. So clearly, knowledge of God and even mental assent... The demons know that Jesus is Lord, but they don't love him. They don't serve him. They don't follow him. They don't trust him. So it's not enough even to know or to have good doctrine. And besides all that, the Bible says this, that we all have an innate and basic knowledge of God and his righteousness. That we all have a, a basic and innate knowledge of God and His righteousness. Romans 1, 18 through 20. He says, for the, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So in other words, every, according to Paul, every person in the world knows enough about God to be accountable to him for that knowledge. That is, no person is without excuse before God. Even from the created order itself, a person can look up in the world and they may deny it. That's what Paul says. He says, they may suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That is, they may choose not to acknowledge the truth. But Paul says, deep down, everybody knows that there is a God. That he is righteous. And that I, that I owe him my allegiance. But, of course... If we, want to, if we want to live lives our own way and do whatever we want to do, then what will we do? We'll suppress the truth and say it's not true, it's not real. But Paul says everybody knows and everyone is without excuse. In our natural sinful condition, we suppress the truth. And that's what, that's what Paul says. I mean, you, you have to read the whole book of Romans to get the whole context of that. But Paul is laying this groundwork in the book of Romans leading up to chapter 3 where he's just going to talk about that we're, we're all, in that, in that passage we just read in Ephesians, he says we're by nature children of wrath. We, we all suppress the truth. This is what we all do apart from God. In Romans 1.32 it says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So what Paul is saying is that we all, in our sinful, fallen state, we, we have this condition. We, we, don't want, we don't want certain things about God to be true because we want to do what we want to do. And what we do is, even though deep down we know that God's righteous decree is that those things shouldn't be done, we not only do them, but we give approval to those who practice them, right? We have to. That's why... That's why in this world that we live in, it is not enough to just agree to disagree. If, if I don't celebrate what you celebrate, I'm, I'm hateful. I'm wrong. I'm bigoted. You, you have to, it is, there's a requirement of that. But what Paul is saying is, what Paul is saying though, is that we all do that. All of us do that. 
If I'm doing something that I know is wrong, then the last thing I'm going to want to do is go over here and tell you that you're wrong for doing the same thing I do. But if I can get you to celebrate what I'm doing, then I feel real good about myself because I'm doing it too. And so that, that's what the point is, is that's who we all are. That's who we are. That's who we are in our natural condition. So conversion then, so the point is that conversion is much more than, than mental assent. It's much more than just knowing. It's much more than just knowing the truth. You have to love the truth. You have to believe the truth. You have to trust in the truth. Now, we live in the rural south and in the Bible Belt, um, which is a lot different than larger, more secular cities, and the difference is becoming uh, broader every day. And in our context today, the average person is going to give mental assent to the truths of Christianity here in Dodge County. If I go stand out on the street corner, and I, I stand on a box, and I say things like, Jesus is Lord. And I say things like, Jesus died for our sins, and he rose from the dead, and the Bible is true, and I shouldn't lie, steal, cheat, deceive, be greedy, or sexually immoral. If I, if, and, and that if we repent of our sins and believe in Christ, we'll be forgiven of our sin and welcomed into God's forever family. If I stood on a soapbox and said all those things, I'd be surprised if a single person came and contradicted me here in Dodge County. I'd be surprised. But what does that mean? Does that mean that every person in Dodge County is saved? No, because conversion is more than mental assent. Or affirmation, it is not merely having a cognitive awareness of these truths. It is loving these truths. It is cherishing these truths. It is adoring these truths. It is, it is embracing these truths as the fundamental aspects of reality and the radical center of one's life. It is having the grace to see that these ideas are not just nice little religious ideas, but they are world-shaking realities upon which eternity hangs. And you cannot believe, truly believe these truths and not be changed by them. I cannot truly, truly believe that Jesus died for my sins and then not care at all if I keep on sinning. It's impossible. So, number one, then, conversion is not mental assent. But number two, conversion also is not moral resolve. Conversion also is not moral resolve. What do I mean by that? Well, I want to be clear here that the kind of conversion that we're talking about is, in fact, Christian conversion. And what I mean by that is that a person, and people do on a regular basis, have what we might call conversion experiences, where something happens to them, or they become part of some kind of new group or community, and their life changes Their life really changes. But just because your life changes doesn't mean you've been converted to Christianity. I can think of someone, for example, who converts to Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness or Islam or Hinduism. And that person may very well, because that person may very well be able in in becoming part of that new community to to muster up a good bit of moral resolve in order to externally change the way they behave. 
And part of the reason for that is because all those religions, apart from true Christianity, are works-based religions. It's based on your performance. It's based on how, how good you act. And so in all those religions, to be, a, to be a, a good Mormon or to be a good Muslim, you have to follow all the rules. And the, the more you can do that, the, the, the higher level Christian you are, the higher level Muslim you are. But see, as we talked about last time, any such change in life, apart from change, wrought by the grace of God through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, is, is not Christian conversion. It's not true change. Something, in other words, you can change your life without, without something supernatural happening to you. But unless something supernatural has happened to you, you haven't been converted to be a Christian. Because Christianity is not just moral resolve. It is supernatural life change by the power of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is because Christianity is unique among all religions in that Christianity is based on grace. Grace is a unique concept to Christianity, and it's built upon another truth to Christianity. And that is that every, every person in the world, according to Christianity, has to be saved by grace. Because according to Christianity, it is impossible for you to be good enough to save yourself. Therefore, the only way anybody can be saved is not because you are good enough, but because God has shown you grace. And the only way that heaven will be populated is there will not be a single person in heaven who deserves to be there. That's different than every other religion. Every other religion says you be good enough and you get in. Christianity says you can't be good enough so the only people who get in are those who don't deserve it. By grace. Through Jesus Christ. And so the two go together. We, as fallen humanity in our natural state, are, the Bible says, are dead in our sin. We, we, we don't seek God. No one is righteous. Romans 3.10 through 12. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You see that? We, it's impossible for us to, un, to understand spiritual realities unless the Spirit of God has come upon us to enable us to see and understand these things. Ephesians, uh, the, this passage that we read, I'm going to read it again because we're going we're to hit it. Or I'm going to read it three times today because this is what we're going to talk about. I'm going to read that Ephesians 2 passage again. You can, you can follow with me in your text. Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So think, think, about, think about our state. Think about our state apart from God. This is what he says. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, without exception, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
by grace you have been saved. What is conversion? It's spiritual resurrection. It is God making a dead person alive by the Spirit. And note note the connection because we're going to talk about it more. When Paul says there in verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. Then he adds this comment. By grace, you have been saved. It's, all, it's, a, it's a parenthetical comment. It's kind of like an aside. He's explaining, what, he's explaining what, what it means to be saved by grace. And for Paul, this is important. For Paul, when he says you're saved by grace, what he means is you were spiritually dead and God made you alive. By grace, you have been saved. It's grace. It's a miracle. So the point is this, is that we cannot do good. We cannot be good. We cannot fundamentally change ourselves from a spiritually dead sinner to a born-again living Christian. It's something God has to do. And in sheer moral resolve, and again, that's the point here, conversion is not moral resolve. Sheer moral resolve without a work of God is dangerous because it leads to Pharisaism. And Pharisaism always leads to self-righteousness. Think about it. The better you can make yourself and you view it, you view that you're self-improving as a work of your own effort and not a work of God in you, then what's going to happen? Then eventually you're going to start doing what? You're going to say, I got my act together. Why can't they? You see what I'm saying? If you do it, if your self-improvement is not a work of God's grace in you, but a work of your own moral resolve, it always leads to Phariseeism because eventually you're always going to look over at someone else and say, what's wrong with them? Why can't they get it together? I got it together. It always leads to self-righteousness. And if you think about the Pharisees, think about them. The Pharisees had more moral resolve than anybody in this room. They kept the Jewish law to a T. And yet, at the same time, they were Jesus' most staunchest enemies because they believed that they didn't need God to be good. And the root, the, the radical heart of Christianity is reaching to a point where you realize, apart from God, I can do nothing. Apart from God, I can do nothing. This ties in what we talked about last week with the false moralistic gospel. That is, we actually betray the gospel when we tell people or imply that they have to get their act together before they can come to Christ. We actually undermine the gospel that way. Because about the worst thing that can happen to somebody is that they really actually start doing Uh, getting their act together a little bit apart from a supernatural work of God. Because what has happened then is that they're looking to themselves. You haven't made a Christian. You've made a Pharisee. You've made a Pharisee. One of the most fundamental truths of Christianity, as we just said, is that Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. Now, to be clear, to be clear from a biblical perspective, The moral resolve that changes somebody without a work of grace, all they're doing, they're not really improving themselves. All they're doing is they're exchanging some sins for others. 
So that's what a Pharisee does. They exchange the visible external sins of, of greed or, or of sexual morality or of addiction or murderous or vile language. All they're doing is they're exchanging those sins for other, in fact, oftentimes more dangerous sins of pride and self-righteousness and condescension and greed and lust that just don't go manifested in their lives. See the difference? So in other words, in reality, you can't really improve yourself without a supernatural work of God. But you can make external changes in your life. But the Bible says quite clearly, Jesus said, apart from me, we can do nothing. What kind of Jesus are we proclaiming when we tell people that they can do something apart from Christ? The degree to which you don't need, the, the degree to which you can do good apart from Jesus is the degree to which you don't need Jesus. We don't need Jesus 97%. We don't need Jesus 99, 98%, 99%. We need Jesus 100%. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So number one, conversion is not mental assent. Number two, conversion is not moral resolve. Number three, conversion is spiritual resurrection. Conversion is spiritual resurrection. I'm going to read this passage one more time. Ephesians 2, 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Do you remember that? You remember doing that? I do. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, we return to this passage because Paul here clearly states that Christian conversion is spiritual resurrection. And we have to see that point that he makes there in verse 5, that explanatory comment that he says uh, in verse uh, 2-5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So I want you to contemplate a little bit. From, from Paul's concept, what Paul is saying about grace here. Because I think it's more profound maybe than we even think about, than we even realize. For Paul, grace is not merely giving people what they don't deserve. It's, it's more than that. It's making spiritually dead people alive. It's granting spiritual resurrection. It's granting a man 
who had no interest in God, smoking the Bible. Zero interest in God. It's not like he was like slowly persuaded that God was true. He was smoking the Bible and he became a Christian. What happened to him? What happened? Grace of God happened to him. Converted him on the spot. God's grace. And so we have to understand but grace because it helps us to understand what Paul means in verse 8. Because in verse 8, he uses the same exact phrase. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. So Paul gives the mechanism of salvation by grace. The mechanism through which God saves us by his grace is the mechanism of faith. Okay, it's the mechanism of faith. And then we have to, and then Paul answers this question. Where does this salvation by grace come from? This salvation by grace through faith, where does it come from? He says in verse, uh, um, verse 9, or verse, uh, in the verse 8, he says, And this is not your own doing. Okay? He says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. What does that mean? What does it mean? This, so Greek's a little different than English. The word for this, this is not your own doing, is grammatically, it's neuter. Some, you know, just hang, hang with me here. It's neuter. It's in the neuter form, okay? There's three, you know, you ever had Spanish, there's masculine, feminine words? Well, in Greek, there's three grammatical genders, masculine, feminine, and neuter. The this is a neuter form, Okay? But when he says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, this is neuter. The word this is neuter. But grace and faith are feminine words. If he was referring directly to grace or to faith, the this would be a feminine form of this. But it's not. It's neuter. What it, all that means is this. It means that Paul is referring not just specifically to the grace or to the faith. He's referring to the whole... He's referring to it generally, the whole concept of salvation. The whole, the whole work of salvation that God does in raising a spiritually dead sinner from the grave to, to, to exercise faith. All of that, he says, is not of yourselves. This is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's a gift of God. That's what Paul means by grace. It's a, <laughs> it's a gift of God. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. All this work, God making us, we who are spiritually dead, alive through faith, is a gift of God. And what this means is that salvation from beginning to end is a gift. Is a gift. Um, I'm going to read, uh, we have to think about it, and, and, and I'm not trying to open a can of worms here, but I want you to think about the scriptures and what they teach, and, and let's think critically about them. Because I think what it does is it gives us, it, it changes our view of grace, about how gracious God actually is. Consider these verses about how, how salvation is a gift of grace. Matthew 16, 17. 
Jesus answered him, blessed are you. Remember when Peter says that Jesus is the Christ? He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. Acts 16, 14. One, one of us, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who is a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. You see that? What's happening? It's God at work. Working in it. That, that's, you see grace? You see what grace is? It's miraculous. It's God working in us to see, to listen, to believe. What about John 6 here? John six sixty three. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray them, betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So the point here, the point here is this. Because Sometimes these teachings, they're, they're hard to grasp. They're hard to know how they all fit together. But what I want us to do this morning is to feel what I believe Paul wants us to feel concerning the grace of God. And that is this, is that God's grace is so great that even when we wanted nothing to do with him, he came down to us. And he opened our hearts and he opened our mind to see the beauty of Christ. Even when we had nothing, we wanted nothing to do with him. God converted us. And I think, I think the longer you walk with Christ, the easier that this, that this is to understand. Because the, more, the longer I walk with Christ, the more I reflect on my salvation, the more I think back to my life before a Christian. And I think, I didn't, I, I didn't want God. I was happy in my sin. I like my sin. My sin was great. Me and my sin got along just fine. Until God changed my life. When that man was smoking Matthew, Mark, Luke, and he started smoking John, what happened? What happened to him? What happened to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus? What happened to him? God happened to him. God happened to him. The grace of God happened to him. And what this means, what this means, and Paul, Paul, he says there, he says, this is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. You see that? Nobody can boast. I can't. I can't even boast that I was smart enough to come to God. Because even that is a gift of God. All God has saved us in such a way that every tiniest ounce of glory must go to God for our salvation. It must all go to God. So conversion... Is not mental ascent. It's not moral resolve. It's spiritual. It's spiritual resurrection. It's spiritual resurrection. 
And number four, finally, conversion is crucial to the church. Okay, Chad, you've talked about conversion. You've talked about it all of grace. You talked about, you know, this is marks of the healthy church. What in the world does this have to do with being a healthy church? Well, it's important for this reason. Because part of (laughs) Baptists believe that membership in the local church should reflect membership in the universal church. And that is that a key requirement, according to what we believe, of being a part of God's covenant community in the local church means at the bare minimum that you have to be converted. That's why we would disagree with our pedo-baptist brothers who are baptizing infants because when you baptize an infant, you're baptizing a non-believer into your church family. But as a Christian, what we're, but as Baptists, and what we're saying is that it is important for us to understand what conversion is so that we can, and that's what it says in our Constitution, that we evaluate people and, and look at them for evidence not of mental assent, evidence not of moral resolve, but evidence of supernatural work of God in their life. You see, the longer you walk with Christ, the more you can look back over your life and say, I had nothing to do with this. It was all God. It was all God. And it's incumbent upon us as the church to look and see, to look for evidences of supernatural grace in the lives of others. A true change in heart, a true change in desire. So that as people come, we can evaluate them to admit them into members of the church. Because how healthy will a church be if it is full of people who aren't born again? Who aren't truly converted? Who aren't raised to new spiritual life? And you say, Pastor, that sounds pretty exclusive of you. And we're not, we don't, we're not Catholic. We're not saying that we hold the keys to heaven and hell. We're not saying that if, if we don't admit you to membership that you're not saved. All we're saying is that we have the responsibility to evaluate the work of God in your life as far as we can. And so is it exclusive? Not more exclusive than anything else. If I go to walk on to the Georgia Bulldogs and I can't run fast and I can't catch a ball and I can't throw a ball, they're not going to let me in. That's exclusive. If I say I have been born again, if I say that the Holy, if I say that I have believed and have been converted to the point that the Holy Spirit of Almighty God lives in me, then I'm going to be able to do some Christian things. And if I don't, then you shouldn't be a member of the church. And so the point is this. We have to ask ourselves this. Is spiritual life at work in me, at work in you? Has something supernatural happened to you? And remember, we, we're saying that it's the work of God, but we're saying that God works through the gospel, that God works through faith. And so I pray this morning that the gift of God of saving grace might be poured out on somebody in this room right now. And you, you say, Chad, what must I do to be saved? I will say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if you believe on him right now, if you turn from your sins and acknowledge, okay, God knows better than I do. God is real. God is good. And if I trust him more than I trust myself, trust him more than I trust my desires, if I follow him, he'll forgive me of all my sins and welcome me into his eternal family. And you believe on him and trust in the Lord who lived, who died, who rose from the dead for you. If you believe in him, 
Today, at this moment, you will be saved. And I'm telling you, later down the road, you'll look back on your life and see how God has changed you. And you'll say, not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So I pray this morning, if you haven't been converted, then I can tell you with full confidence what God's word says. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you.